Hey, good morning and welcome to Trinity. We're so glad to have you worshiping with us this morning um, here online uh, from your house. And uh, just want to encourage you to open up your heart to what the Lord wants to say and do in you as we worship him, as we receive from his word. We're going to go over to Laura now and she's going to lead us in the hymn at the name of Jesus.
Our gospel reading today is from the Gospel of John, the second chapter. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you or to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out, and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his apostles believed in him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hey, so this weekend, there are a lot of northerners that are making fun of us. Of course, a little bit of ice and a little bit of snow predicted in Atlanta, right? And it all shuts down, and we have to go to church online and that kind of stuff. Uh, it's almost like L.A. when it rains, right? People are just so panicked and don't know what to do themselves. Well, um, since they're all making fun of us, I thought maybe we could just take a little moment to make fun of them this morning. Now, if you're just tuning in, you don't know. We love northerners. we got northerners in our congregation. We have Alabama fans in our congregation. We love them all. Uh, we're one family of God, uh, but sometimes we make fun of each other. Soon after I was in undergrad, um, I went to go work uh, very closely with a family who was from the north. I'm not going to say exactly where they're from. It was a mitten every year. But um, somewhere up there, up north, and um, they really became like family to me. And I can remember early on, I went over to their house for dinner. And I noticed that as they were cooking... There were like four or five of us there, and as they were cooking, there were four or five pieces of chicken. And I was like, what's going on here? I see there's like the same amount of piece of chicken as like people here. Like, did you just assume that I only wanted one piece of chicken? Like, what if I wanted more, right? I don't know about you guys and kind of your idea of Southern hospitality, but where I grew up, like my mama, if you're coming over, she's going to cook like a whole lot of food. There's going to be a bunch of extra. In fact, she might even cook like a whole nother meal extra in case she didn't like the first one. Like, hey, if that's not good for you, you know, she can offer you a complete other alternative. We were having some folks over at our house the other day, um, just before Christmas, and I decided to make chicken parmesan, uh, partly because it's delicious, partly because I had been seeing on Instagram a bunch of people frying up chicken. I thought, all right, I'm going to do this. We're going to make some chicken parmesan. And as I'm there cooking, I've got a bunch already cooked up. And I look over at my friend Mark, and I'm like, hey, Mark, do you think we have enough? And he's like, yeah, I think we're good. And so we cooked it all up. We ate it. 
Well, it turns out we had enough. We ate our fill. We ate seconds. Like our like 15 kids or however many kids we had between us, they all ate their fill. And the next day, we had still enough that I was like, should we just call them up and like tell them to come over again and eat, right? There was just like so much left over. And I think a lot of us in the South, that's how we like to do it, right? Like we're going to have guests over. We want to make sure that they're like really, really full and that there's like no chance that they're going to leave our house having wanted anymore. Of course, our gospel reading this morning is a story about a God of abundance. And this story with Jesus, uh, we see a sign. This is actually one of the first of many signs that we're going to see in the book of John that reveal the true nature of Christ. This particular sign reveals Jesus as the Messiah. He is the host of the feast who provides abundantly for the guest. So let's take a moment to walk through the passage together. Jesus and his disciples have been invited to a wedding party. And then the wine runs out, right? And so Mary, the mother of Jesus, comes to him and she says, hey, there's no more wine. Now this is embarrassing for the host, right? And it's a real bummer for the guests too, right? Like when a, once a party, once the food and the drink runs out, a party can go down pretty fast. Who wants to be at a party without food or drink? Well, what happened? Well, we don't really know from the story. Did they not order enough wine ahead of time? Did maybe they add some extra guests to the list at the last moment, thinking they would have enough but not doing the right calculations, and suddenly they run out? We don't know. But I'm sure a lot of us can relate to this story, right? If ever you've planned a big party, maybe you've planned a wedding for yourself, it can be kind of nerve-wracking, right? Maybe you've like tried to sit down with the caterer and decide, okay, just how much food are we going to need to pay for? Because it costs a little bit of money, right, to get that wedding catered. Like, we want to make sure we have enough that we pay for, uh, for all the guests to have enough food, but we also don't want to, like, you know, spend everything we got. Or maybe you've had to really shorten that list. You're like, look, we've, we can only spend so much on the budget for this wedding, so i got to kind of, like, figure out, like, who am I going to invite, right, on the guest list. We can have a lot of anxiety around this kind of thing, so we can imagine the kind of anxiety that's going on at this party. Even if you didn't grow up in a first century Palestinian Jewish family where wine was really important and really like kind of a central part of every major feast, right? Like I've got some wine here and, and at every feast, every wedding feast or every religious feast, wine would have been a central part of just enjoying and rejoicing together. And even if you didn't grow up in that kind of family, you could still relate to this, to this story as long as you've ever provided a good meal for some friends and hoped uh, that there would be enough, right? The fear of scarcity and the fear of not having enough, it's a powerful force. It's a force that drives many of us in a lot of different ways. And so Mary's anxiety about the party is an anxiety that lives in many of us. What if we run out? What if we don't have enough? What if we are not? enough. Jesus responds to his mother, woman, of what concern is that to you and to me? And right now, a lot of us are probably wondering, what's wrong with Jesus? You don't talk to your mother that way, right? Some of us, if we had responded to our mother that way, we might feel like a strange tingling sensation across our face, right? If we had said something like that. 
what is Jesus getting at? Why is he saying this? Well, it turns out Jesus does love his mother and he does care a lot for her. In fact, if you read to the end of the gospel, you notice while he's hanging on the cross, while he's dying, he's concerned about his mother and he's making plans to make sure that she is taken care of. Actually, why John records this kind of uh, strong saying from Jesus, it's to emphasize that Jesus is only doing the will of the Father. And he'll say that over and over again in, in John. And it lets us know that he's not simply being coerced into doing anything. It, it wasn't like Jesus could do miracles. And so, you know, someone would say, hey, we need you to do this party trick. Make some more wine for us. This is literally God's will for Jesus, that he would perform this very miracle in this very way. And so the text wants us to know that God is up to something. It's showing something very particular about Jesus. And so this is what happens. Jesus actually goes, goes ahead and does this very thing. And he tells the servants, he says, I want you to take these six large jars uh, and I want you to go fill them up. These are large jars that, that would have contained uh, 20 to 30 gallons each of water. And I want you to go fill them up with water. And then he says, once you've got them filled to the brim with water, I want you to go take them to the chief steward, kind of like the head waiter at the party. And then in verse 9, we read this. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, Though the servants had drawn the water new, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, I want to an answer a few questions. One, why should this be the first miracle of Jesus? Two, why so much wine, and why is this the very best wine? Three, why does turning a lot of water into wine result in the glory of Christ being revealed, right? And the disciples believing. Why this? And then what does a story like this say about the life that we share in Christ? In what sense is this story our story? So why should this be the first miracle of Jesus? You think about it. If you were going to introduce Jesus to the world, and you, know, you think about all the different miracles maybe you've read about or heard about that Jesus did, what miracle would you choose? Like if you want to introduce Jesus and friends, right? It's almost like a campaign launch in a way, right? So in John, this is actually the very first thing that Jesus does. Like Jesus has gotten baptized uh, that was kind of like a public thing, but like he received baptism. He didn't really do it. And then he called a few disciples, and that was kind of on the side. But this is his first public act of ministry, and it's the sign that reveals who he is. If you had to pick a sign, what would you pick? Maybe this wouldn't be the one. Why is this an important sign to reveal who Jesus is? Well, there are a lot of Old Testament prophecies that talked about this new world that God is going to bring about, and about a Messiah. And in Amos 9, the prophet Amos was prophesying that there's going to be a day when God's going to act decisively in human history. Kind of this new world, this new creation that he's going to bring about. And in that prophecy in Amos 9, we read that God is going to restore the fortunes of Israel. And it says this, the mountains shall drip 
with sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. And then in Isaiah 25, we've got this vision of this new creation that God is bringing about, and it says this, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a rich feast, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, a rich food filled with marrow, of well-aged wines strained clear, and he will destroy, destroy on this mountain the shroud that, is, shroud that is cast over all peoples, the sheet that is spread over all the nations, and he will swallow up death forever. And it goes on to say, This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us be glad and rejoice in our salvation. So you see in the Hebrew Scriptures, the prophecies, the vision of the end is this end time the kingdom of God, it's a kingdom of abundance. The prophecies prophesied of a time when wine would be flowing. There's another ancient Jewish writing uh, in the intertestamental books that, that's called Second Baruch. We don't necessarily consider it scripture, but Jews at the time of Jesus would have been very familiar with, with Second Baruch and, and the prophecies. And in, in that book of Second Baruch, they're talking about this messianic age and he's describing just how plentiful the harvest will be. And it says on every vine, there's going to be a thousand branches. And on every branch, there's going to be a, a thousand clusters of grapes. And it says for one grape, you can make one core of wine. And a core is like, I looked it up, it's like 220 liters or something, right? It's this exaggerated vision of the future when God is going to bring about an age of abundance. This is the kind of image that the Jewish people would have had in their background as they watched Jesus perform a miracle like this. Now can you see why Jesus might perform this as the first miracle? It's an announcement. The Messiah is here. Jesus is the host of the messianic banquet. He has come to unleash joy on the earth, God's kingdom of abundance. Has, arise, has arrived. And this is why the text says, Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Canaan of Galilee and revealed his glory and his disciples believed. It's not that Jesus did some like cool party trick or some magic trick, right? That the disciples like, well, man, if this guy can turn water into wine, right? I mean, he must be like the Messiah or he must be the son of God. No, it's not about that. It's the sign that reveals who Jesus is. And by faith, they were able to receive it. By faith, God had opened their eyes to see Jesus for who he was. This person of whom the Old Testament prophets had prophesied. So what does this mean for us? The people of God. Well, there's a lot of implications, right? I think one thing that I just think about, just how differently you might walk around is, is if the Jesus that you have in your mind is your Lord, is a Jesus that's just kind of always sad, right? And a Jesus that maybe doesn't have enough, and he's always wondering if he can maybe give you a little more, maybe wants to give you more, but doesn't have enough to give you, you know? I, I don't know about you guys, but I love religious art, and I love religious imagery. But sometimes there's a lot of religious imagery of Christ where he's just like always sad. And guess what? Christ is fully human, 
and, and God is actually the creator of our emotions. So Jesus definitely is sometimes sad, capable of being sad, and there's nothing wrong with being sad. But our Christ isn't always sad. In fact, when he came and lived among us, a lot of times he was like really full of joy. So much so that he was the life of the party. Literally, he was bringing the party with it, right? Like lots and lots of wine. And so it can form us in how we think about the God that we're serving as we walk around. It reminds us that we are God's feastly people. Now, I'm super sad that we're not together this morning uh, receiving the Eucharist together, but every Sunday in the Eucharistic liturgy, we have that host and the priest will break the host and say, Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. And then the people of God say, therefore, let us keep the feast. We're God's feastly people. John 2 is pointing to a Jesus that brings the wine. And then there's a related passage that we get to a little bit later in John 6, where Jesus creates a feast for people with an abundance of bread. In the Gospel of John, we have this abundance of wine and this abundance of bread. And they point us back to this Eucharistic table that we gather at every Sunday, this feast that we're gathered around. And we just need to just see that gathering every Sunday as a reminder that the kingdom is a kingdom of, of abundance, that we're literally eating and drinking from Jesus, and we're sent out into the world with this kind of this, this grace mentality that like, I've just received something really great. And so, I don't know about you, but like, you ever like win something, like you win $100 or something, and you just feel free, like, oh yeah, I got 20 extra for you, right? We should feel that way, walking out of church and going out, just remember, like, we have received so much from Christ. I want to encourage you to be a, we got to be a party church, we got to be a party people. I, that's why I love being Anglican. We've got all these feasts, right? We've got like a feast of the Epiphany, and then like a few days later, we got, we got the feast of the baptism of our Lord, right? And then a few days after that, we're going to have the Feast of the Presentation. There's all these like feast days that we have, and it's opportunities really just to stop and to celebrate and to rejoice in the life of Jesus. We celebrate his life and the life that we're called to in him. And we get to be party people, and we get to invite people into that party. All right, the second thing I want to say is that in a, in a world dominated by greed and a fear of scarcity... We can live lives of spirit-empowered hospitality and generosity, confident that the Messiah will provide not only what we need, but even more than enough to bless others through us. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I love uh, Lynn Manuel Miranda and uh, just everything he does. Uh, I'm sure a lot of you guys have seen Hamilton or maybe In the Heights, which is so good, the Broadway play that was made into a film just this past summer. And in that movie, In the Heights, if you don't know, it's about uh, Washington Heights in New York, this really great neighborhood um, with lots of Dominicans and Puerto Ricans. And it's kind of about gentrification, how some of them are moving out. And uh, there's this woman, I think her name's Daniela, and she is the hairdresser that everyone goes to, right? She runs the salon, and her salon is closing down, and she's having to move up into the Bronx. And so it is kind of close, like she's leaving, right? She's about to go tell everyone bye, and she can't find it, anyone. She's like, where are all my people? So she goes to this kind of like back alley courtyard and finds all the people, uh, and they're kind of uh, sitting around, sad and kind of moaning and having a pity party. 
they've got some reasons to be sad. Okay, first, it's really hot in New York City. It's a blackout. There's no electricity. You know, there's no air conditioning. So everyone's super hot. They're all fanning themselves, kind of sitting around. But they're also just kind of sad, right? Like their neighbor, their neighborhood's disappearing. Um, they're sad to see people leaving and, and everything going on. They feel kind of powerless. And then she kind of gets on them. And she reminds them that, hey, our people have been through a lot. And even though we've been through a lot, we have always found a reason and an opportunity to party. And of course, it's a musical. And so they break out into this song. Uh, what is it? Oh, yeah. Uh, the Carnival del Barrio, right? So party in the barrio. Um, she breaks out into the song. And of course, they all start singing and they all start dancing. Now, it's a musical, of course, and we probably don't just break out into song and dance in our everyday life, but I think this points us to something important. We've got to have, in a sense, a carnival mindset. We can have a carnival mindset or we can have a scarcity mindset. And I want you to know that some of the most hospitable, most generous people that I know are not even people that are especially wealthy. Some of the folks that have cared the best for us, folks that have cooked for us, folks that have bought us gifts, folks that have showed up on my doorstep when I really needed them, are some of just the most everyday working class folks, but yet they're just so generous and so hospitable. They're always ready to welcome me into their homes, always ready to prepare a meal for me. So I want you to know that this idea of, of a mindset of kingdom abundance it works for you. It doesn't matter if you're living in one of the biggest homes in Sandy Springs or if you're living in one of the smallest apartments in Doraville. We can still have this, this mindset of we are serving a Lord of abundance. We've been invited to a kingdom of abundance. Christ is setting a table and, and he is preparing a table and he's inviting more and more people. And we belong to him and we belong to that. And so we extend this abundance out to those around us. Friends, this is my prayer for us. I want us to be a party church. I want us to be a church that is always celebrating the life of Christ and the life that we have in Christ. I want us to be committed to eating and drinking with each other. And by God's grace, always believing that we're going to have a little something extra to extend our neighbors so that we can invite more and more people in to the feast. I want you to remind yourself about God's abundance daily. And I want you to do that until it really gets into your soul, to where you live with the strong sense that you serve a God of abundance. And when you're feeling anxious or feeling overwhelmed, maybe by bills or maybe by conflict at work, maybe you can pray this prayer from Psalm 23. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies, and you anoint my head and my cup overflows. Let us pray. God, I thank you for uh, this sign, and I thank you for this kingdom of abundance. And I pray just as 
in demonstrating this sign that the disciples of Jesus were able to recognize him for who he truly is, I pray that you would reveal to us this week in an ever-deepening sense that you are a God of abundance, that you are a God who is putting on a feast for your end-time people, that you are a God who is in making more and more room at the table. God, we thank you for the good news of the gospel, that you're including even people like us at your table through the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. God, and I pray that you would fill our hearts, fill our hearts with a confidence in your abundance, that we might become like you, people of hospitality and generosity. It's in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit we pray. Amen. Amen. Now we're going to go over to Laura, and she's going to lead us in the song, We Will Feast in the House of Zion.
Well, Northside family, I uh, just hope everyone is staying safe and warm out there and maybe having some fun too. Um, we love you. We miss you. Can't wait to worship again with you next Sunday. Uh, praying for you. May God bless your week.